This is Julie Meachin. I'm an associate professor of anatomy at Des Moines University and a vertebrate paleontologist, and this is the Prairie Farm Podcast. I'm Doug Duran, a landowner trying to be a conservationist. I'm Tabitha Panis, president of the Iowa Prairie Network. I'm Ryan Callahan, director of conservation at Meat Eater. Angela from X and Root Homestead. Chris Helzer, the Nebraska director of science for the Nature Conservancy. Judd McCollum from Working Class Bowhunter. Taylor Keene, founder of Sacred Seed. Ryan Bryson of Bryson Wildlife. This is Luke Fritch. This is James Holtz, Joy Van Weingarten, Sam Soholt, Phil Ebert, Julie Meachin, and you are listening to the Prairie Farm, the Prairie Farm, Prairie Farm, Prairie Farm, Prairie Farm Podcast, Prairie Farm Podcast. Welcome to the Prairie Farm Podcast. Well, Nick and I are here in our home state. We didn't have to drive far for this one. Last week, we had to drive, what, like six hours, something like that? A long time. A, a, long, a long time. And it was, a, it was very well worth it. We got to uh, see some really cool... Uh, you know what? I actually have an expert now. I can ask the correct term. So we're not, you know, we're not dealing with fossils here because they're not fossilized yet. They're still real bones. I, I just always go with either the word relic or specimen. How do you refer to like Ice Age era bones? So uh, you usually would call them fossils. I would generally call them fossils. Although if they're not completely fossilized, you could go with the term subfossil. Oh, okay. There we go. I got my term now. I feel so much more comfortable talking about it now because I always stumble. I do a few of those verbal pause uh, 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 relic. <laughs> so the subfossils specimens that we saw, we did, we got to see those, but we also got to write on this thing called the uh, what was it? The zipline of death? Is that what they? Oh my goodness! Yes. <laughs> Nick and I were shaking in our boots. We we pulled up. It was like mi- over a river, <laughs> and it was connected by like twine on one end, and it was like a giant metal crate. That we went across, and you should not give that guy's name because we should was, not be throwing but that it was, guy into the bus. It was, it was incredible. Actually, it was very safe. The The twine, turns out, was just to, so you could pull yourself across the rest of the way. And it, there was nice steel cable there, some pulleys. It worked great. Uh, but when we first pulled up, we're in the middle of the woods, and uh, this guy is going to take us on a hike, show us you know, some of his favorite places he likes to look. And and uh, they just mentioned, uh, yeah, the water's kind of high today. We're going to have to use the zip line of death. And Nick and I are just like, what have we gotten into? <laughs> and and uh, so it's nice to be back here in the safe comfort of our home state, just an hour down the road uh, here in Des Moines, Iowa. It's actually where I was born, by the way. Really? Yeah. And then you moved away immediately. Four years later. You weren't feeling it. I, I loved it here. Oh. You know, it was, do you remember it was, living here? Some, I do. I, those were some of my uh, uh, yeah first memories were in my house in Altoona, Iowa. Back when Ken actually peed his pants, not like the last podcast we were talking about. Oh, my goodness. Wow, just way to go to that. Okay. So we are here today with Dr. Julie uh, Meachin. And I first heard Julie on a podcast this summer when I was working in the Golden Alexander's field. I was was probably hoeing out some... uh, uh, what were those? Probably some of those uh, little white daisies, um, those little white asters that that we get. And those thistles. uh, and maybe some, yeah, maybe some thistles or some wild strawberry or wild lettuce. And, uh, you know, you start to burn through your normal lineup on podcasts pretty quick when you're, you know, just working all day, listening to podcasts. So I just started doing like hot topic searches, things that I'm interested in. And so I, I just type into Spotify, I think it was Pleistocene megafauna. And I'm not kidding you. One of the top hits, if not the top hit was an interview with uh, who we're sitting with today, Dr. Julie Meachin. So, Dr. Meachin, thank you so much for 
joining us on the show, being willing to share some of your expertise. Glad to be here. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, that was probably the best part of it. So the interview was great. But then when I heard that you were like in our own backyard, it's like, man, we have got to get her on the podcast. So <laughs> it's been in the back of my mind ever since that was probably clear back in July when I when I heard that. And he, he came into the busted into the office over lunch break. <laughs> and he's like, guess what? I just heard the best, the best podcast I've ever heard off of fossilized backyard uh paleontology des moines and i was like what, what is going on man we need a, uh dr meach and i was like who whoa maybe that was the day down. i had heat stroke or yeah. something i don't know <laughs> well i'm flattered yeah, yeah, yeah. it was it, so it's it's quite an honor to be here and and just fantastic opportunity for us to be able to interview but we want to start out with a little bit of fun we need to break the ice a little bit this is the first time we've all met here in the room and uh, uh i thought maybe we could play a little game uh we kind of did this Oh, back in July, Nicholas, when we were with Laura Walter up at oh, UNI. That's right. Ken's trying I to got, get me back. I, my Ken turn you. to get Nick back. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I made him play a game. He was brand new to the prairie world, and I made him play a competition game against a professor of prairie, basically. Yes. It was I got I got brutalized. So anyways, uh this is my turn to get revenge on Nicholas. And what we're going to do is we're going to go around the table here. We'll start with Nicholas because uh, he is he is probably the least experienced in, in wow, how re- researching uh, Pleistocene megafauna. But I thought we could go through and each name a species. We can use common names. Uh, I wouldn't even do all that great uh, <laughs> using uh, scientific names. And uh, Dr. Meacham would probably like at least a little bit of competition here. She's probably going to crush us by like 20. <laughs> and you're saying... Plasticine megafauna? Pleistocene, yeah. Pleistocene. Is, is that that's that, how you say it? That's our... Pleistocene. Well, yeah. Pleistocene. I'll, I'll let Dr. Meechin explain uh, what the Pleistocene is exactly. So the Pleistocene is what we would commonly call the Ice Age. Ah. So it spans um, from about 2.5 million years ago to about 12,000 years ago. And we are now in the Holocene, correct? Is, correct. is the era we're in now. Yes. So it's kind of like... From a geologic and paleontologic time frame, our last era, right before us. So it's really interesting talking about, you know, clear back when the dinos were around. But what about the stuff that was ju- that we just missed for our current time mm-hmm. frame? So that's that's where I think probably a lot of natural interest lies for people. It's like, man, I wasn't that far away from all these critters. Yeah. So, but anyways, we're going to start the game now. So Nicholas... What would be an Ice Age era species well, that you can think of? Right before this, Dr. Meachin was very kind and told me I was allowed to use common names. So <laughs> didn't even know that these creatures had scientific names, <laughs> let alone what any of them were called. So uh, we'll go. We'll we'll start off strong with my. Did you watch the movie Ice Age last night, Nick? <laughs> Did you do your What homework? does. I, maybe. <laughs> I was going to say I would start strong with my good friend Sid the Sloth. <laughs> On the ground sloth. Very good. And I know that there's, I think, like four major groups of ground sloth. Is that right? Three, uh, something like that? I don't know how many there are. There's definitely multiple. I do not know how many groups of ground sloths there yeah. are. Um, I, you know, I know the, the major groups they're in. I know many of the genera of ground sloths. But um, I don't I don't know how many groups they've currently divided uh, yeah, them into. Yeah, and a lot of that stuff just changes with time too, as more and more evidence is unearthed. Yeah, 
and we know the guys at Unearth Evidence, so they're, they'll be on somewhere else in a, another episode of the podcast. But, uh, yeah, that's a good one, Ground Sloth. Yeah. You can go next. I am going to go with my absolute favorite, um, which is the saber-tooth cat, Smilodon. Yeah, that's my favorite, too. Such a cool... And no evidence of them in Iowa, correct? Is no, there... we have them in Iowa. Oh, we do? Yeah, absolutely. Wow, I'm so wow. glad we came here today. I, I searched that fact uh, several years ago, and I, I was like, please let there be evidence somewhere. Oh, yes, they're yeah. here. That's awesome. Yes. That's good to know. Uh, well, I'm going to ask you more about that later then. Um, I will go with uh, the woolly mammoth. That was like my one other that I knew. <laughs> all right, all right, we'll get, th- we'll get this. Giant beaver? Yeah. Ooh, yeah. Giant yeah. beaver. All right. Evidence of those in Iowa too, correct? Uh, you know, there probably are. Um, they're a little bit older than some of the other taxa. Um, okay. So they're not they're not there right at the extinction event, sure. but they are found quite uh, widespread across. Um, really? What North does a little America? bit older mean? Does that mean like a million years ago or like fifty thousand years? Yeah, ago? like a mil- like more like a million years ago. Okay. Yeah. So does that mean that that bone that that dude found was a million years old? Well, if you've seen like fossilized dinosaur remains, think how old those. I know, yeah, but dinosaurs are like, older yeah, than fair. 65 million. So yeah. I know, I know, but like, I always think of like a, crew, a specialized crew as to come in and get dinosaurs, and this Did was it, like it looked fresh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. yeah. We got some. We have some interesting uh, uh, footage to show uh, Dr. Meachin after this podcast. Yeah. We probably should have showed her beforehand so she could, uh, you know, weigh in on it. But yeah, that's a good one. Giant beaver. Okay. Yeah. Um, dire wolves. Yes. Oh. Yeah. Uh, made I'm famous. Sure that's just something off of Harry Potter. But no, no. Uh, Game <laughs> of Thrones. Weren't they featured on Game of they Thrones? They were. They were from Game of Thrones. Um, they are real, and I have published on them many times. So oh, very cool. I like them a lot. Excellent. Uh, here's one that that I have always been uh, really fascinated by, especially with the story of uh, pronghorn antelope still that are in the West. It's believed to be the American cheetah was like their, you know, their predator-prey relationship would have been their the predator part of that. And uh, they've been gone for, for a long time now. Yeah, we've been working on those, actually. So we have a lot of data on the American cheetah. Um, really? Both of my so graduate cool. students, my current graduate students, have projects on the American cheetah. What, uh, that is so cool. What is that? How related is that to a cheetah? Like, I have an image in my brain when I hear Mm -hmm. the word cheetah. How related are those two animals? So, um, as it turns out, there is a, um, it's called the the puma clade. Um, And it's uh, pumas, cheetahs, and the South American jaguarundi, which is a smaller cat, Mm -hmm. that are all really closely related. Um, And so, as it turns out, the American cheetah is also in that clade, but they are sister to the puma. So well, they're okay. really closely Very related similar. to a mountain lion rather than an African cheetah. But wow. they have a lot of traits that resemble the African cheetah, which is why they're called the American cheetah. Are they? Yeah, that's, were they as fast as a cheetah? Like, is that, was that so a that's, um, that's a great question. And uh, we actually don't know, mm-hmm. um, but it's one of the things that we are investigating. So that, and that, Isn't that kind of where they get that idea of the the speed of it from the still the existence of antelope on our landscape here in North America that are so much faster than any other predator on the landscape right now. That is the just so story. And it turns out we are actually um, evaluating whether that's true. And uh, we have a paper coming out um, online uh, this month, actually 
um, showing that um, indeed American cheetahs did eat pronghorn antelope. However, um, they ate a lot of other things too, especially sheep. Oh, this is so cool. And uh, the other species that ate um, the pronghorn antelope is the American lion. Oh, that was my next one. Um, so I'm one. sorry. That's you can good. go ahead and take no, that one. No, that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> well, it's also going to be my next one too. So <laughs> well, I guess I'll just have to go on to the next one. <laughs> that is crazy, man. I yeah, I feel like we're on the cutting edge of research right now. Yeah, I have nerded over qu- quite a bit for the last several years. So this is this is like a dream that's right awesome. now. Stag moose. Good choice. Stag moose. Okay, um, a short-faced bear. Very good, very good. Now, short-faced bear is different from a cave bear, correct? Yes, they are different. So Um, I'll I'll, I'll choose cave bear, but then I have another question for you. I've heard recently that uh, uh, scientists believe that the presence of short-faced bears along the, uh, you know, along Beringia, the, the land bridge, mm-hmm. is what kind of slowed human migration. Uh, and then once they were extinct, it's like it opened up the relative floodgates of people migrating at a much more rapid pace across the land bridge hmm. because that danger was gone. I don't know. I have never heard that hypothesis. So I can't hmm. really comment yeah, on it because this is the first time I'm hearing of it. I think, yeah, I can't remember. I don't want to. I don't want to get in trouble for using somebody's name, but Nick, you can edit this out. We can. We can try and confirm okay. it later if it's not true. <laughs> I think Dan Flores, maybe. I don't know if you've ever read Dan Flores. I he, j- he just had a book come out. Um, oh, what's it called? Wild New World, I think. And he's written Coyote America and American Serengeti. Hmm. Uh, okay. Yeah, I've heard of that one. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So I think he. I think I heard him in an interview talking about it maybe or something, but I could be totally wrong there. So Nick, how, how does the short faced bear compare in size with like a grizzly bear? It's bigger. Wow. Definitely bigger. It's, My it's goodness. like on size with like a polar bear, maybe even a little bigger than a polar wow. bear. <laughs> yeah, Bigger than a polar bear. That's My crazy. Goodness. Polar bears freak me out because of how long their neck is. That thing freaks me out. You know what I'm talking about? Is they got like just you like just expect it to neck. be shorter because just, it's a bear. Yeah, right. I think so. You yeah. Imagine yourself like being in a tent and all of a sudden he just like extends his neck yeah, yeah. right into your tent over your face while you're sleeping. It might be all the Coca Cola, but no one has any business having a neck that long. It's not called a giraffe, you know. <laughs> um, short-faced bear, cave bear. Um, man, do I get to say one wrong? If I say one wrong, am I out? Sure, we'll give you a free pass. We'll give you one free yeah. pass. I want to say um, uh, the the whatchamacallits. Weren't there like woolly rhinos? There yes. were woolly rhinos. Very there good. He does. He's still in. There were. Nice. They weren't really here. We didn't have woolly rhinos. We had we had non-woolly rhinos here in, in North America. Oh, but woolly cool. rhinos definitely existed in Tibet in the place to see. Oh, so, cool. yeah. Very cool, huh? Excellent. Yeah, yeah I, done, I really pulled that out of nowhere. Some dipped fifth in your, into your homunculus team. there, yeah. the, <laughs> the old things you think you might know or whatever. That... All right, I'm going to do kind of an ex- obscure one so that you guys can take the really well-known ones. I'm going to go with yesterday's camel. Yesterday's, yesterday's camel. camel. That's yesterday's what it was camel. Very cool. Yeah, that's its common name. It's Camelops hesternus is its okay. scientific name, and it easier. was. 
all over North America during the last ice age. So just a very woolly looking camel. No, it wasn't woolly. Probably it was, you know, furred, but it, it pretty similar. It was just big, really, really big. (laughs) That is cool. Very cool. Um, I'm going to go with, uh, Hagerman's horse. All right. The uh, toad horse, right? Mm -hmm. Hagerman's horse. Yeah. I worked on those. I worked at Hagerman for two summers. Very cool. Yep. Toad horse sounds horrifying. No, it's a, it's a, so, so Hagerman's horse really looks a lot like a zebra. Like it looks like what you would think a zebra would look like today, probably oh, with, with toes? less stripes. It only had one toe. So oh. horses today have one toe. Okay, um, so in the was... past, horses had multiple toes. They had three toes. And before that, mm. they had four toes. But we're going back like way far sure. back at this point. We're going back mm. like 50 million years yeah. sure. for like a four-toed horse. Huh. So we, you know... The horses that existed in the last ice age, and actually the Hagerman horse um, was was common in the Pliocene, which is the the epic that happened just before the Pleistocene. Oh, so my so, off, on but, my uh, You know what? We'll take it because there were lots of horses in all over North America during oh, the last man, ice I might age. Be out. I don't so know. <laughs> I, I think I'm out. I I'm trying to think. There, I want to say just based it, off of ice age, there for sure was like squirrels of some sort. There were, there were. But yeah, I don't think that's going to, I think I'm out of anything I could think of. I'll give you just, a hint. There's one very similar to the woolly mammoth. But, yeah, not, that you have but not the woolly rhino? No, no it's no, not woolly. Yeah, it's not woolly. It's more like an it's elephant. It's an elephant. Well, I know there's a mammoth that's not It starts a with an M. <laughs> Is there a, not a Siberian elf, uh, mammoth? No, uh, you almost said it. You almost you said it. I want to say mammoth. It's that's no, not right. It's not mammoth. Oh, no! I, it I is mammut. However, mammut is that the scientific? Mammut is the scientific name. It's mastodon. Yeah, mastodon. mastodon. Yeah, and we talked about that. Yeah, oh. yeah. It shows how I listen. I always forget about mastodons because you just your mind just jumps to the woolly mammoth. You know, they're just so iconic and and I don't know. They're you see them all the time and pop culture and stuff. And so actually what we had here in Iowa probably weren't woolies. They were um, what we would call the Columbian mammoth. That's okay. what I see. That's what I was trying to because they so, weren't woolly and they were huge. They're right? much they bigger were than huge. woolies. Woolies are much smaller um, okay. and woolies are what you'd find in Siberia. So sure. um, above the glacier line is where woolies would be and then the Columbians mm. would be below the glacier line which we were just below the glacier line here in Iowa. Sure. Someone we interviewed recently said that you know lots of animals their favorite habitat is um or just fauna in general uh is transition areas so the and and i don't know how true this is i was hoping you could verify a little more or not but they were saying that the transition of like glacier mm-hmm. um and like ice age into a more forested area it would just be ba- very... yeah just basically near that terminal edge of the glacier yeah. and then into the habitat that would pop up you know yeah, hundreds of taiga. miles and in, in both directions but that since it was a huge transition place um that there would be more fauna there do you so i don't know whether there'd be actually more fauna there or not but the fact of the matter is that forested areas are terrible for fossilization they're mm. really just not good for fossilizing things and so we're not going to find a lot of animals in the areas that were forest Mm. right and it totally depends on the species for example a mammoth a colombian mammoth would be much more interested in open areas Mm. so that transition area would probably be really prime habitat for them sure whereas something like a mastodon or 
um, something that was much more adapted to living in a forested area probably wouldn't like that transitional area. They'd want a more forested, closed habitat. Mm -hmm. So I think that really depends upon the species and the niche they filled and what they were eating and, you know, who their predators were or whether they were a predator, who their prey was. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's a lot of factors. But I think that mammoths probably really did like that transition area because it was open. That's interesting. Interesting. All right. Well, I'm officially out. (laughs) Okay. Uh, I I think I'm up, aren't I? We we can no. quit. We can quit. We can just move on. You guys <laughs> yeah. can ask me all the yeah, questions you right. want. Yeah. That's right. That's right. That, that actually you lasted longer than I thought you would. I was impressed with that. Yeah, I, I really went on a rampage. I knew more than I thought. I really went in with just ground sloth and mammoth for a minute. So yeah, you, you dug deep into that that stored memory bank that you had and and pulled some stuff up. So that was great. Well, you know, it's I imagine a lot of people are wondering this. Nick and I, of course, are wondering this. How did you get into studying? in this area. So, so I should say we're at the university of, or Des Moines university, which is a medical school. And it might, people might think, well, why are they going to a medical school to learn about, you know, all these extinct species from the ice age? How do those things overlap? Can you kind of explain? Yeah, absolutely. So as it turns out, I'll answer your second question first, and then I'll tell you how I got into this. Sure. Um, as it turns out, um, In most medical schools, anatomy is a major area of study. You have to study anatomy to be a good doctor, and you study human anatomy. Well, humans are just another mammal. Uh, They're very similar to all other mammals. And so, um, as it turns out, the two groups of scientists that really study anatomy of humans and other mammals are paleontologists, who study the animal part of that, and then um, biological anthropologists who study the human side. Mm-hmm. And those are the two groups of scientists that actually study anatomy, and so those are the two groups that can teach anatomy. So most medical schools in the whole world, including other countries as well as the U.S., actually employ paleontologists and biological anthropologists in their medical schools teaching anatomy. And so you can go pretty much to any medical school in the country and find a paleontologist and a biological really? anthropologist. Yeah. I, I would have never guessed that. That's, it makes sense, though, when you, when you put it that way. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's really interesting. So then has this just been something you've always been interested in since you were gr- growing up and, you know, looking at going to the library, checking out books on old critters and things like that or so so that's a great question and and no the answer is no um i was never a dinosaur crazy kid which is kind of hard to believe but um i was always interested in mammals i always loved mammals um when i was very little up until i was five um my family lived in chicago and we would go to the field museum sure and the two things that i was most excited about was uh were the taxidermied animals Mm-hmm. So like, you know, the dioramas you would go into where it's like the Serengeti and yeah. it's like everything in the Serengeti is stuffed mm-hmm. and like posed like um, <laughs> and uh, the mummies. And so it was dead okay, things. Yeah. I really loved dead things yeah. always. I don't know why, um, but I really loved mammals and I didn't have a lot of exposure to science other than the museum, mm-hmm. which was my first love and is still one of my loves as museums. Um, but I thought the only thing you could do with animals is be a vet. And so I immediately set my sights on being a vet as a young kid. Okay. So much so that I even went to a special high school for health professions and pursued 
veterinary science in high oh, school. That is awesome. That's cool. Um, so I worked for a vet uh, for the my whole last year of high school. And after working for a vet, I decided I really didn't want to be a vet. <laughs> it wasn't for me. It wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, and so I had to figure out something else. And I just was sort of aimless for a little while. I went to college um, at the University of Florida. Okay. Um, and I majored in zoology because I knew that I wanted to do something with animals still, but I didn't know what it was. Hmm. So... My sophomore year in college, um, I was looking through the the paper, the college paper, and there was an ad for an employee working in the vertebrate paleontology collection at the Florida Museum of Natural History. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, that sounds really cool. Yeah, yeah. Let, me, let me apply for that. So I applied for that job. I didn't get it. Um, turns out they wanted to hire somebody who was work study, so... Mm. Um, I didn't get that job. However, I persevered and decided at that moment that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to do vertebrate paleontology. Um, And so I ended up taking a class on it. And my professor for that class was Dr. Dave Webb. And he was a world-renowned paleontologist who studied um, camels and llamas. Hmm. And I really loved the class. And after the class was done, I asked him if I could do a master's degree with him. And he agreed. And so I stayed at the University of Florida and I ended up doing my master's degree on llamas from North America. Um, And while I was working in the collections, I would go through the drawers and I would look at all the fossils. Uh And I just remember getting so excited about opening up the drawers with the saber tooth cat skulls. Like that was the thing that I just loved and I just was so excited about it. And so I decided that I wanted to do my PhD dissertation on carnivores. And so that's what I did. I uh, went to the University of California, Los Angeles to work with Dr. Blair Van Valkenburg, who is like the world's most famous carnivore paleontologist. Mm. And I did my dissertation with her. And so now I'm a carnivore person. And yeah. That is a cool story. So from llamas to the things that eat llamas. Yeah, that's, exactly. That's that's pretty cool. <laughs> what uh, did eat llamas mostly? <clears throat> what what eats llamas currently mostly if they're like hanging out? Oh, pumas. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Mountain lions, yeah, definitely. Yep. And I'm trying to remember uh, South America. Yeah. They that's where a lot of I mean, like they had a pretty dense population of llamas uh, going back to you know prehistory right yeah going back to the um great american biotic interchange which happened um during the pliocene so before the pleistocene so basically that's where the land bridge formed between north and south america and a lot of different species um crossed that land bridge and llamas crossed it from north america into south america at that time so camels and llamas are actually a native north american species and they moved south Hmm. Um, to South America, and they moved over the Bering Land Bridge to Asia, mm-hmm. right? To camels yep. did. <clears throat> that's that's fascinating. So, oh man, this is just such a cool conversation. I can I I could very easily get bogged down here on just going into the you know nitpicking some of these like really <laughs> really uh, small niche areas of interest here, but we got to keep moving. Um, you know, with studying all these things, I, I imagine that if you've been listening to this long enough, and in fact, I think you said this at the very beginning, your favorite critter being uh, the saber-toothed cat. Yeah. What's the like coolest thing you've gotten to do with 
with uh, looking into Sabretooth. So um, I'd say the coolest thing that I've gotten to do is work with all the saber-toothed cat fossils at the Rancho La Brea Tar Pits. Wow. So uh, during my PhD um, in Los Angeles, I got to work extensively at the Tar Pits. That is cool. um, And the collection is just amazing. It's a carnivore trap, meaning that Mm. um, what happened was one herbivore would get stuck in the tar and scream and cry, and it would attract all these carnivores that would come running. So for every one herbivore in the collection, there's like 10 carnivores. Wow. So they're overwhelmingly overrepresented at this site, um, which is the opposite of what you see in nature, Mm -hmm. right? You have way more herbivores than carnivores in nature. And Smilodon, the saber-toothed cat, is the second most common species there, just shortly after dire wolf. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I've got to see, you know, I've seen... I've seen thousands of saber-toothed cat specimens. And I've got to do so many really cool studies. And I think the coolest study that I've personally done with saber-toothed cats is looking at the the bone thickness in their upper arm bone, the humerus, um, to see that their upper arm bones were stronger pound for pound than any other cat. So they were really doing something cool with their arms and so they just must have been beefcakes like they were just incredibly strong and you know the the working hypothesis for that is that they used their arms to avoid overusing their canines their big saber canines because they're actually very delicate they could Mm. break very easily and so they had to sort of position themselves or the prey in a very specific way so that they could do that bite um, without messing around a lot, right? right modern yeah. modern cats don't do that. They they got to hold on and they you know they get shaken yeah. and jostled by their yeah. prey, but that couldn't have happened with saber tooth cats or their teeth would have broken. So, um, so their arms were used to to sort of take up the slack. Sure, were they were they hanging out by themselves or were they in in I it wouldn't be packs or prides or or uh, were they kind of a familial cat? Yeah, so most of the evidence that we have suggests that they were. Um, And uh, there's some really compelling evidence from the tar pits. Um, One is some work that was done by my PhD advisor and her colleagues, um, and it was head by... um, uh, You know, uh, one of her colleagues um, that works in Africa a lot. And basically what they did was they went out and they did these playback experiments on the Serengeti, where they played uh, the recording of a of a herbivore in distress right something that was about to die and then they videoed who came and as it turns out the species that came to that herbivore in distress were all the big social carnivores so lions and hyenas Hmm. and then hunting dogs okay and so they basically knew they had backup right like they're coming Mm, yeah and they're like this is my posse i've got backup no yeah. one's going to mess with us, right? They knew to go into um, a vulnerable situation. Yeah. And uh, the ones that didn't come were things like uh, leopards and cheetahs who are solitary. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't have that backup. Yeah. That's interesting. And they so they got to go in on their terms when they see, oh, that is Yeah. Cool. And so what? that's what we see at the tar pits. Um, we see the big social carnivores getting stuck. Okay. more than the solitary carnivores. Um, so the, the things that we have the most of by far are the saber-toothed cats, the dire wolves, and then to a little bit lesser extent, the um, American lion. So okay. we've got the big three um, social carnivores at yeah. the tar pits. Um, and then the other evidence for sociality we see is healed wounds in saber-toothed cats. Mm. 
Um, so a colleague of mine um, who's now at the ALF Museum, uh, Dr. Myrene Belisi, um, who is a Filipina scientist. Ah. She's amazing. Oh, very cool. Um, she sounds she, wonderful. She is <laughs> wonderful. Um, she um, and her team looked at healed fractures um, of Smilodon and noted that they survived after their breaks and they healed which means that they're being fed, right? Some sure, some other some other family members feeding them, um, because they couldn't they obviously couldn't hunt with these major fractures, sure, so they're like sure. hip fractures and things like that. Wow. So um, that's the other evidence we have that Smilodon is is probably social. Yeah, that is that is fascinating. You know, with the the mechanical disadvantage there with the saber tooth uh, canines, are most. Uh, I guess we could say subfossils. Are most subfossils found with broken canines, or did, for the most part, do they keep them intact pretty Amazingly, well? Amazingly, no. Um, wow. They don't break their canines with a huge frequency. Um, and that's pretty incredible, which means that they had to be doing actions to avoid that, yeah, very right? skilled. So they were very careful with their canines. They knew they that's needed them. We do find some that have broken canines, broken in life, so broken and then worn, right? Sure. Yep. Um, mm. But but overwhelmingly, they're mostly intact. Hmm. Um, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's what a what a fascinating story. The the La Brea tar pits are definitely on my bucket list. Um, so you Nick, should go you know, for next sure. next Christmas, you know what I want. <laughs> Museum past. I just wanted socks, man. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's uh, that's that is fascinating. I I love the saber tooth cats as well. There's just something about, you know, you expect things from an era gone by to look otherworldly, and they fit the bill. You know, there's there's some critters just like like a mastodon. We were talking about that earlier. It's like, yeah, yeah, it looks like an elephant. You know, Mm -hmm. it's definitely different, but looks like an elephant. But but uh, yeah, saber tooth cats. They they definitely fit the bill there. So. when we were doing our naming game earlier, mm-hmm. what of those critters that and may and you feel free to add to these too, would we have seen here in, you know, the prairie states, so across the Midwest, what kind of uh megafauna would have been inhabiting uh this part of the country? Uh, it would have been so these megafauna, they really did get around. Um mm. most of the megafauna were found all over most of North America. Um so we definitely had um mammoths here. We know we had mammoths here. We have lots of sites with mammoth fossils. Mm-hmm. Uh, we definitely had dire wolves here. Okay. Uh, there are dire wolf fossils from Iowa. There are Smilodon fossils from Iowa. So saber tooth so cool. cats. I did not know that. That is that is that made my day right there. Um, that we had some there are ground cats. sloth fossils from Iowa. Um, lots of bison fossils from Iowa. Mm. So uh, probably the the Ice Age or Pleistocene species bison antiquus or okay. the, the ancient bison. Um, I'm sure that we had camels here. Um, we probably had other big critters too. We probably had short faced bears. I don't know how oh, much, really? yeah, I don't know how much <laughs> record we have of those, but they're pretty pan, um, pan continental. Um, these species are found at either end of the continent. We have good records from Florida. We have good records from California. And if I, you know, it stands to reason if they're found in those two places, um, you know, they may have been found here. The only sure, issue yeah. might have been, you know, the cold to some degree. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the species that we know that are found in the cold were probably found here. So that is that is really interesting. That made me think of two other questions. So because of that very wide ranging dispersal of all these different species, and there's some like that today, you know, like mm-hmm. coyotes or um, 
uh, white-tailed deer, um, raccoons. You know, there's some animals that, you know, you can find them in almost all 50 states. Yeah. But for, for the most part, it's very sectioned off, you know, for what kind of, you know, today's megafauna. What are you going to find in those areas? Do you think that the ecosystems that were around at that time, and maybe we should even use use a, uh, a different term, maybe the biomes would have been more similar, you know, from region to region at that time in history, like less drastic change than what we see today. So in other words, F- Florida wouldn't be quite so different from Iowa, you know. So or- I would say, I would say no. I would say there's a lot of diversity in the Pleistocene. Um, there's probably a lot of differences in flora, um, they were probably, okay, sure. um, and then but the megafauna are sort of an exception because they are so big and they move mm-hmm. around. And so when I'm talking about the megafauna being mobile, I'm mostly talking about big hooved animals. So things that um, can travel long distances in a short period of time, horses, bison, um, you know, elephants, those kinds of things. They're going to be everywhere because they move around so much. Sure. Um, and then the things that eat them are going to follow them everywhere, right? Yeah, the big, the yep. big carnivores. Um, when you talk about the smaller animals, those are going to be much more localized. Okay. And so ground squirrels, right? We have a lot of ground squirrels in North America today. Mm-hmm. As it turns out, most of them are different species. And that's because mm. little things don't move around as much. Right. Um, I mean, maybe one exception to that would be like the cottontail rabbit, which is just Mm -hmm. about everywhere. Although when you go into the West, there are definitely habitats where you don't find those. You find um, jackrabbits instead. And so it would probably have been very similar in the Pleistocene. Um, I would say humans probably fragment the environment quite a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, But I would say that different, definitely different biomes, like if you're going to go into a desert, um, you're going to find different species than if you're going to be in a forest. And I would say that was probably much more exaggerated in the Pleistocene because there were just more animals then. There really were. Yeah, yeah that's that's really interesting. So I imagine then today if we took humans just off the map, you know, snap our fingers and, and we are in North America mm-hmm. uh, and things were just allowed to be as they were during the, you know, post-Ice Age but pre-settlement, part of of the the country it'd probably be kind of the same wouldn't it a lot of the larger mammals today would still be you know moving migrating all you know to and from different regions of the the continent and the small small mammals would still be kind of locked into their little areas probably and i mean there really wasn't a post-extinction event, non-human event in in north america so Hmm. people came in to north america from Asia, right? They crossed Mm -hmm. the Bering Land Bridge and they came into North America um, during the last Ice Age. So they lived, they coexisted with all of these Mm -hmm. big megafauna that we're talking about right now. Um, And it wasn't until, you know, about 12,000 years ago that the megafauna started to go extinct. 12 to 13,000 years ago is when that started to happen. Mm. Um, And there are a lot of different hypotheses about why that occurred, but it seems like the answer is probably it was a a whole host of things that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of different things happened at the same time. Um, climate started warming naturally. Mm-hmm. Um, humans were here. They introduced things like fire. They um, probably hunted some animals, although I don't think an overkill hypothesis um, 
is is good enough on its own. I hmm. think it was a, a, a amalgamation of effects with all of the megafauna. Kind of a perfect storm. Yeah, a perfect storm. And so, um, you know, the big things went extinct and the small things stuck around. And even some of the bigger things we have today that we think of as surviving the extinction event, you know, unscathed, mm-hmm. that wasn't the case likely they probably suffered major effects from oh, the extinction really? event like uh, mountain lions and coyotes sure. um and um and and really things like deer and elk weren't in north america until the very very end of the pleistocene oh, okay that's really they came in at sort of the last gasp um from from europe and asia so they would have used the they would have used the very land, land bridge, bridge. yeah okay yeah. that's that's really interesting. Um, wow, yeah, that's 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 just fascinating. So when we're looking at a lot of these large species, and you know, this goes right down into your area of expertise here, because uh, this is a, an anatomy structure equals function type question, right? Mm-hmm. So I imagine there had to be a lot of common traits. Like first of all, when I look at when I when I do any kind of research into this stuff, I'm always blown away by the size of these creatures. Yeah. Cause even like, you know, a grizzly bear is a huge animal today. Right. But put him next to a short faced bear and it's little brother, big brother, you right. know? And, and you look at the size of, of a, a ground sloth, just incredible. You know, yeah. they're reaching way up into those trees to, to eat and even dire wolves compared to like a gray wolf now. Mm-hmm. I mean, was there a, like a whole host of common traits that you've seen in your research that kind of fit, organisms that these large megafauna that were living at this time so that's a great question and the only thing that they really all have in common is size i mean Mm. they're all just like super sized right um especially compared to the things that we have around today and and amazingly they were a lot smaller than some of the things that were around before them Hmm. um but i think i mean the form the form equals function thing is is true um but these different animals sort of had different niches and they did different jobs so for Mm -hmm. example i'll just compare and contrast a mammoth and a mastodon they're both giant elephants right Mm -hmm. um they're both really big however their body shapes are really different in terms of if you look at them just as the same group a mammoth is really tall they have these really high shoulders they have these really high heads they have these giant tusks Mm -hmm. right and they're an open habitat species so basically there was the only upper limit on their size was um you know physical constraints right Mm -hmm. gravity um is really the only problem that they have to struggle against in terms of like their upper height and their and their weight um whereas a mastodon is a forest dwelling animal and so they're much shorter and Mm -hmm. squatter and they're probably thicker but they're but they're they're definitely shorter um and their tusks aren't anywhere near as long they're much shorter and they're much more functional they Mm -hmm. used them so they basically kept them filed down a lot um and that's because they had to maneuver in trees and Mm -hmm. in the forest and they you know rub their they ate trees they rubbed their tusks on trees they used their tusk to get at the bark of trees to eat that Mm. um and so they look very similar on face but when you really get down to it they have different body forms and and i guess the same things could be said of something like um i'll go with cats since that's the the um the the group of animals i know really well Mm -hmm. um when you look at something like a jaguar versus a cheetah 
right? They're yeah. both cats. They both kill prey. They both have sharp teeth for that. But their body shapes actually look very different when you look at them. A jaguar sure. is really robust and squat and has mm-hmm. short um, bones in their forearm and longer bones in their upper arm. Okay. And a cheetah is the opposite. And a cheetah has a short upper arm bone, really long lower limbs, and they're very thin. And that's mm-hmm. because they're built for doing, doing two totally different things. So mm-hmm. the jaguar is really a you know a powerhouse that's really good at at power it's really good at what we call mechanical advantage it can mm-hmm. climb a tree like nobody's business it's good in bursts right whereas a cheetah is going to be fast they're just really fast and that is their job mm-hmm. and cheetah might be able to climb a tree but certainly not as well as a jaguar and sure. i guarantee you that if you put a cheetah against a caiman in the river the caiman's going to win yeah. right like <laughs> yeah. um Whereas that's not the case for the jaguar. The jaguars yeah. kill caimans in the river all the time. And so they are they are totally built for doing different things, even though they look very similar when you first see them. This hmm. is, is kind of uh, awry on the topic, but you had mentioned that you love mammals. Yeah. And uh, all, this, all these megafauna we are talking about in North America specifically, we are talking about mammals. Yeah. Why are we talking about mammals? We understand that dinosaurs went extinct you were saying like 65 mm-hmm. million years ago yeah right, what why if at one point um life evolved into giant reptiles mm-hmm. when it started over again why did it evolve into giant mammals instead of mammals and reptiles why is it why why are we seeing mostly just mammals so we do have a lot of reptiles um there are actually quite a lot of reptiles in north america they're just older so they're not in the time period that we're talking about here. If you want other giant reptiles, you would have to go to more tropical places, right? Uh, like well, you think about maybe Titanoboa, right? You guys oh have heard of Titanoboa? That, that so thing haunts my nightmares. That's a, <laughs> <laughs> so Titanoboa was discovered by several really close friends of mine. So really? really? Yeah. So they're oh the ones who like, do all the crazy titanoboa stuff and i actually think my colleague in who has the office next to me sarah warning she's also a paleontologist okay um, has also worked on titanoboa oh my um, goodness and so she works on dinosaurs there's not does. a more i mean you've probably heard of the movie meg where they're talking about you know megalodon yeah i'm telling you titan titanoboa will freak you out the yeah. second you see a like a the fossilized remains of one of those things oh my goodness so there were snakes like that but they weren't here in north america they were elsewhere right they were in other countries they were in africa sure or other continents i should say um but so there were big reptiles around mm-hmm. they just weren't mostly in North America. Um, We actually did have, um, before the Pleistocene, in the Pliocene in North America, we had these things called terror birds. Okay, Um, I've heard of those. Forest rakids is what they are called, and they are much more common in South America. But basically, they are like giant ratite birds, so flightless, giant flightless birds Mm -hmm. that were carnivorous. They were these, you know, meat-eating birds, Mm -hmm. and they were like... Bigger than an ostrich. So they were just like these gigantic wow, birds. Wow, that's horrifying. Yeah, that is pretty horrifying <laughs> to me too. Like I'm much just more running, afraid of yeah. a giant bird than a giant mammal. Oh, yeah. I don't know why. Like there's just something about bird brains that I'm just like, oh, I don't know what you're thinking. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah right. I mean, maybe um, we, we're like, okay, that's family. You're way back in the line. You're yeah. like crazy Uncle Jim. 
family. We haven't been related for a long time. Um, so there were other big things. Um, it's just that in the last Ice Age, the mammals were what were here and what were big. And that's um, partially due to what happened at the extinction where the dinosaurs went extinct. Um, the things that lived were the small things. Um, so mm. all the big things went extinct at that point in time. And the small things that were around were small lizards. They were small mammals. And they were small dinosaurs. Mm. And it was the small dinosaurs, a.k.a. birds, mm. that actually made it through that extinction event, right? Mm. Yeah. That's, it's interesting how, how uh, natural selection can prune, you know, for traits that are just, you know, how, how large is... I, and this was right. And this was like, I would say this would... Maybe not even count as natural selection at the end of the at the end of the um, dinosaurs. I mean, there was there was lots of that, but it was a catastrophic event, right? right like yeah. it was so natural selection is a process that really takes you know millions of years to work, and and you know it, species are honed into like these perfect. Um, they fill this perfect niche. If the niche goes away, there's nothing for them anymore, mm -hmm. and that's when they go extinct. And the problem with the dinosaur extinction was not. A niche um, removal so much as like a catastrophic Just event. Just a huge event. That, yeah. you know, we got nuclear winter and like the things that were big and needed lots of resources just absolutely couldn't survive. Mm. And I guess that's um, a little bit of foreshadowing for the extinction event of the mammals in that really the extinction event targeted all those big things. The big things are what went extinct at the end of the mm. last ice age. Yeah. 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 So... This is, I mean, you're you're hitting a lot of the stuff that I had here, which is just fantastic. We're we're talking about how the way these things were structured, and and some of it's just unlucky too, like the, a cataclysmic event, you know, yeah. where you're just you're <laughs> just you're day, just in a, you're in the wrong place, at the wrong time, you know, and right, and and uh, it's it it's it's true, extinction happens that way as well, um, but uh, what. So as we work towards back towards the Pleistocene here, you already foreshadowed this a little bit. What would be kind of a good summation of the little things that added up to a big thing that spelled disaster for so many of these species in a roughly narrow amount of time? Yeah, I would say definitely climate change was a big one. Um, the climate warmed at least six degrees centigrade mm. um, from the Pleistocene to the Holocene. And so it was a huge, and it was it happened in like a few hundred years. Like it was like wow. immediate, right? So that was a huge thing. I would say humans um, being introduced to new environments um, probably didn't help things at all. Mm -hmm. um, if humans weren't killing these animals, which they may not have been, they were doing things like modifying their habitat. That's one mm -hmm. thing that humans are really good at, even in small numbers, is modifying their habitat, yeah. right? They yep. do it everywhere, yep. and they've done it since they existed. Yep. So um, that is that was definitely something that didn't help. Um, and, and these were just major landscape changes. Like, for example, if climate warms and humans come in and modify the habitat, you might get a complete floral turnover. Mm. If that happens, that's disaster for all those big ungulates. All those big herbivores are sure. not going to survive that. And if the herbivores don't survive, the carnivores won't survive. Mm -hmm. And so that it was kind of that one-two punch. Yeah, I think that really that really did it. That really did it. Yeah. Yeah. That's that. It's sad when you think of it that way. You know, that just everything 
changing and you know kind of going full circle here with with uh saber-tooth cats and some of my reading in the past it i heard that the reason uh oh, this would be another hypothesis wrapped around the tar pit idea was be, with the changing climate the changing landscape and and uh uh Sabertooth cats, and you can correct me on this for sure. You, you, you're far more studied <laughs> on this, but but uh, built much more for close quarter ambush type hunting. That as that landscape changed, and there were less of those types of opportunities for predation, they be, they were becoming increasingly desperate for food. And so, hearing that sound of a dying mammoth would would be extremely attractive to somebody who's having a hard time at this point in history getting a meal. And, and, uh, so they would, you know, become vulnerable to a, such a situation where extreme act of desperation to get food. Absolutely. I mean, I think that is basically what happened to a lot of the carnivores at the end of the ice age is that, um, I mean, and we kind of see this evidence at the tar pits. Um, there's a, the, the tar pits have different pits and there's one pit in particular that sort of falls at the end of the ice age. And so it mm. entraps that sort of end extinction event and we actually see huge numbers of carnivores in that pit okay. and and so it, so it might, wasn't just it wasn't just saber-toothed cats it's, no it's it's, it's everybody certain. it's everybody and they were all kind of desperate i think at the end of the ice age and and they really all sort of just kind of fell off the cliff and mm. and that was it right like uh, um, an animal stuck in the tar at the end of the extinction event would have definitely been something that would have drawn in a lot of predators, right? Because, yeah, yeah at yeah. that point, they're probably in major competition for for any kind of herbivore because mm. um, there's probably not a lot left comparatively. And so, you know, they're going to they're gonna do whatever they can. Sure. Mm. And, and we also kind of, well, you mentioned this a little bit too. Some of these organisms were coming in at the tail end, mm-hmm. and, and they're still here today. Right. Some were here, though, uh, for quite some time. They've shifted into different ranges like um, muskox and uh, yeah. uh, some of the caribou. I guess it would be a, what, they're a, a subspecies or a, or a variety or I don't know what the right term is there. But, but car- some of the caribou that we still have today that have now in the lower 48 we have no caribou right and which is actually i've heard someone make a point before it's kind of like this big extirpation event that happened in very recent history like i think the last caribou in the lower 48 were gone in like the 70s or something like that Hmm. 60s or 70s and nobody really cared and it's it's just sad because they used to be here in iowa too um but some of these organisms have stood the test of time they they survived why why was it that they were able to hang on what kinds of common traits that did they have or that's a good question and um i would say a lot of those common traits are flexibility Hmm. um so some of the things i can think of so coyotes um coyotes were here in the lower 48 states before the extinction event and they're here now and they're actually doing really well with Mm -hmm. humans Mm mm-hmm um, and I'd say coyotes are sort of the champion, um, flexible species. Like they can really live in any kind of environment and they can eat just about anything. And as anybody who lives in an area with coyotes knows, uh, don't let your cats out at night, right? Mm-hmm. Like coyotes yeah. can eat cats and they're, and they're doing <laughs> yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. Um, they can eat garbage. They can eat dog food. They mm-hmm. can eat anything. 
Um, and so coyotes were one of those champs. Um, the gray wolf actually did a really good job of surviving the extinction event. And that, I think that's mostly because they were really relegated to um, Eurasia and Siberia before the extinction event. Mm-hmm. Um, and the removal of dire wolves from the lower 48 by that extinction event opened up a niche for them that wasn't, you know, that right, wasn't yeah, available yeah, before. Yeah. They were being outcompeted. Um, yep. and, and they moved down here after that. I mean, they were around in the Pleistocene, but they were really rare. Like, there's okay, not that sure. many of them. Mm-hmm. Um, compared to dire wolves who are just everywhere. Hmm. And so there are some traits, you know, the deer, um, elk and deer are definitely old world species. They're, they're Eurasian in origin and they came over sort of toward the end of the extinction event. And I think that there were probably still enough of them in Eurasia that they still kept coming over. So it was mm-hmm. probably certain things that allowed them to survive. Um, the other big one, the other big megafauna that I can think of that survived um, was the the mountain lion. And as it turns out, um, from their DNA, it seems that they may have actually gone extinct in North America really? during the last ice age and then wow. moved up from South America okay. back into North America. Wow. So or almost extinct. Right. So sure. they really took a hit as well. They weren't they weren't safe. Mm-hmm. Um, the things that really also did well were all the little critters. So mm. all the rodents, all the rabbits, mm. all those things, um, the smaller carnivores, they all actually managed to do just fine. Um, and I think, you know, there was a lot of size selection during that extinction event. Yeah. Um, so the things that were bigger that survived sort of um, either came in from somewhere else, maybe had a really, really labile ecology, mm-hmm. um, or, you know, they were small. That's, yeah. that's about it. My... Um, Aunt, who who is a doctor, she she we were talking one time about the size of humans and and how humans are bigger now than they were before, and and this was years ago, so I don't remember the specifics, but she said that uh, what just when you add more mass to an object, it gets more complicated, like keeping it simple, and like like if you took the anatomy of a human now and you just blew it up six times its size, like stuff starts to break down. And she said, well, in, in micro doses of, of being larger, um, it, it human beings' gradual, bodies are more efficient. Gradual change. Yeah. Well, well, we're more efficient when we're smaller. So as, as soon as we were able to, um, I don't for lack of a better term, become more stable at, uh, at living, um, take away more and more of the variables that would end our life, um, we've been getting taller. I don't know how true any of that is. It so was, I will, I, I will yeah. comment on that. Um, and I will say that um, absolutely humans need more resources now than they did, I'm sure, back then. So the larger you get, the more resources you need. Yeah. And when you're living out, you know, as a hunter-gatherer and you've got to, like, live off what you hunt or catch or collect – it's certainly better to be smaller, right? Because then you're not, yeah, you're you don't not, need as much, as much yeah. right? Um, but I think the the common thinking now on why humans are so large is because of two things, actually. Number one is that height is a dominant trait and it's selected for in humans, mm-hmm. right? Um, so humans actually select for taller individuals, mm-hmm. right? You were sure. talking about when you were yep. uh, in the Philippines and you're a very tall individual and they wanted to marry you off to their daughters. Oh, yeah. It, it, you're tall. Yep. You know, that's a yeah, that's a very, that's a good point. Um, <laughs> it's a very desirable trait. Yeah. yeah. Um, so... So that is that is one issue. The second issue is nutrition. Um, yeah. We have gotten our nutrition has gotten 
you know, immensely better with yeah. farming practices, <laughs> right? So yep. farming, growing, growing crops, um, modern farming, learning how to cultivate these things, um, you know, our, all of our artificial selection for, you know, crops that produce more abundant food, all of these things. So mm-hmm. as our nutrition has improved over the time and as people have selected for taller individuals, those are the two probably major mm. things that um, have have driven humans to get taller over time. And, That's interesting. And there are some places in the world where that is not the case. There are places, um, you know, more remote places like what we would might call a third world country mm. where there's not the nutrition that, yeah. that we have in North America um, where the individuals are much smaller. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. They're much smaller. And so, right. And that's because they don't have as many resources, especially when they're young. And they can't afford to be as picky with mates and, and they're just they're just out to survive. I, I, I find it interesting where the the humans are um, like we are. We are getting bigger. And I wonder, so after that, my point being, after the extinction period, it seems it kind of resets um, biological size in um, uh, in animals and fauna. And so, and then maybe as, as a, not a species group, as like all fauna together, it seems like we are growing again. And then, you know, maybe in another 200,000 years, there will be something else, and then you know, and then only the mice survive, and then we grow again. And- wow, gr- great transition there, Nick, because that's that's kind of where where we wanna we wanna go here with what what can be learned from this. You know, mm. like f- from our standpoint as a species, you know, we we're Pleistocene survivors. We are, and and uh, congratulations, everyone. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> put that on your resume. Um, what lessons can we learn from seeing all of these species that have totally gone from before So that is a great question. I think um, one of the things that my colleagues and I are working on now is looking at how animals respond to climate change. Mm. Um, Mm. The Pleistocene is a major lesson in that, right? Um, That was one of the major drivers of the extinction event. Um, And so what happens when climate changes? What happens when it gets more arid, which is Mm. definitely happening over over the whole world, right? We're Mm. having global aridification Mm. with global warming. Um, What happens to the animal species? What happens to the plant species? Mm. Um, And then what happens to humans? And um, I think people are seeing the answer already. I mean, it's happening. We're seeing it in front of our eyes, right? Um, It's not good. There's nothing good about it. Right. Um, You know, crops dry up. Um, we have major droughts. We have major floods. We have major catastrophes, weather catastrophes. The animal species that we depend upon for um, things like pollination, right? Like bees, mm-hmm. um, yeah. flies, those kind of things, they're dying. They're disappearing. None of that is good for us as a mm-hmm. species. Um, we we certainly don't live on this planet in a vacuum um, it's not just the things we cultivate that are important, right? Mm-hmm. Not just the, the plants yeah. and the animals we cultivate. Yep. But the natural world is really important for our survival. Yeah. And the diversity on this planet. I mean, if for nothing else, you know, wouldn't it be sad to know that there are no more tigers left in the wild yeah. and that the only way you could ever see one is to go to a zoo, yeah. right? Uh, Pro- I mean, that's, Probably in Texas, right? Isn't yeah, that where right. Where all the tigers are. <laughs> and so where people shoot them. And, um, and then so I'm just saying, you know, I we really need to think about this as, as a species. Um, if we don't, and, and and the climate change that's happening now is all anthropogenic, right? Mm. It wasn't anthropogenic at the end of the Pleistocene. It is now. Right. We are modifying our environment 
to the point where we're changing our climate. And that mm-hmm. is not a huge surprise considering that in small numbers with almost no technology, we could modify our, our environment enough in the ice age to help a bunch of species go extinct. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And so now yep. we have much bigger and better tools and we're modifying our environment. If you could snap your finger today and change one thing that humans do that affects our climate, what would you change? I would change, I guess I would change all the carbon emissions that we have. I mean, that's really the driver of global Mm -hmm. warming, right? That's really what is causing the climate to warm. Um, So if we had way fewer carbon emissions as a species on this planet, um, Mm -hmm. I think we'd be in a much better shape. We'd be in a much better place overall. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wish I could snap my fingers and make people care. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's really what I wish I could do, because if that were the case, everything would change. I wish I could snap my fingers and make people like Elon Musk donate money to causes that Mm -hmm. are going to save the planet Mm -hmm. rather than, you know, whatever. Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. A little a little more selflessness. That'd be nice. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. And, you know, of course, from our standpoint here at Hoxie Native Seeds, where we try to restore prairie we're on the other side of that too where let's get some of this carbon back out of the atmosphere stored back in these you know vast root systems that that last roots we only need them for four months out of the year you stop that that talking nicholas (laughs) no it's it's true we we and and even that too with growing a commodity crop beyond what is needed in in many cases a lot of fossil fuel emissions and, and manicuring that ground and, and uh, planting and harvesting and, and putting inputs and, and uh, uh, treatments through chemical treatments. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a two-edged sword. And, of course, uh, you know, our own glaciers, the glaciers really haven't stopped receding. Right. I mean, and now they're just receding at a, at a very alarming rate. And that's the other part of the kind of runaway train situation, too, with climate change is those are our biggest ref- reflectors of of solar radiation back into space. And and uh, they they help regulate our climate. And the warmer it gets, the less we have. The warmer it gets, the less we have. The warmer it gets, you know, it just yeah. keeps on going. And and so I I agree. I think that that uh, Dr. Meachin has, has painted a very accurate picture of something that we've got to first start by just looking at that picture and acknowledging it and and saying yeah it's it's a real problem and then the next step of course immediately to follow is let's make those changes pronto um the the landscape has changed so much through history the the players on it and uh the, the the way that landscape is even structured and it's impossible to predict the future entirely but we do know that conservation is such an important part of that um we need to and, and we need to acknowledge the fact that we as humans bear so much responsibility when it comes to making good choices um you said clear back earlier in the interview just humans it's one of our our adaptations right i suppose a behavioral adaptation where we can look at the landscape and, you know what i'd kind of like this over there and i would like this over there and and we we change it so much we have that ability more so than a lot of other species do and so uh, as you're listening into this consider that and uh, think about how wildly different things have gotten in a relatively short amount of time and uh, it worked for us this time 
Uh, but maybe the next change, the next shift that happens uh, may not work so well for us. And, and, and even still, even if, you know, we talked, uh, our Dr. Meachin talked about how some of these species didn't go extinct, but they didn't do well either. And I don't want to be in a world like that where there's so much suffering and pain and, and shortage and, and want and loss. And I don't think anyone else does either. So uh, let's dig into this and, and consider this. Be fascinated by the cool science side of it, of course, but also learn the lesson in the end, too, of, of what our role needs to be going forward. Um, Nick, we don't have an ice age in our prairie anymore. No, we do not. But no glaciers. But, nope. but uh, conservation still happens. Just one yard at a time. Just one yard at a time.